Today on the podcast is a bit of a reunion with Michael Kilgore and Hannah Ellis. The three of us did a musical reading a few years back, and today they share their Broadway journeys since that show. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It. If you're putting happiness, if you're putting the pressure of your happiness on this thing, you're doing it wrong. This thing does not have the power to make you happy. Welcome and thank you for joining me on the podcast, featuring stories and conversations with fellow creatives about the realities of a career in the arts. That website, winmepodcast.com. This is my third episode in a month-long look at previous Broadway seasons. Now, the subtitle for today's episode could be Lessons Learned. Both Michael and Hannah not only talk about their Broadway experiences, but the insights and wisdom that they gained from their families the struggles and challenges they met before coming to New York City, and the ones that they faced being here in the city. And as I mentioned, it was in 2011 that the three of us first met and worked together on a musical called The Star Child. Now in season three, I spoke with Jenny Stafford, who was the book writer on that musical. It was presented through the NYU Tisch Musical Theater Writing Graduate Program. Both Hannah and Michael have three Broadway credits to their name, most notably Bright Star for Hannah and Motown the Musical for Michael. And it is that love of new works like Star Child that keeps them going. Star Child was my very first reading of a new musical I ever did. I'd like worked on a couple new musicals, full versions, but I'd never done like a reading. That was a new thing for me. Uh, so Star Child was so was just so special. And since then, you know, we've worked on so many projects. I think I've worked on like over 70 new plays and musicals or something. It's like crazy. Wow. Yeah, because it's like our bread and butter, right? It's like what I do is new work. Like, God bless. It makes no money, but it's so artistically fulfilling. <laughs> um, but Star Child, I can still sing that tune. I can that. The Star Child is here. The Star Child. I'm the star child, the star child, I'm the star child. It is my heaven decree, duty to save you with the power of my beauty. Star child, I'm the star child. That melody, I listened to Jenny Stafford on your podcast, actually. Mm Wow, what a tune. That is a funny lady. Oh, Jenny, oh yeah, yeah, oh she's, she's like, great. She, she's funny, man. She really, really is funny. And when Jenny found out I was doing this episode with Michael and Hannah, she just had to chime in with her own thoughts and experiences of what it was like to work with us doing that musical. The thing that I really appreciate about Michael and Hannah, and I'm going to include Patrick in this as well, uh, because that's how I met all of them was through this process of doing the Star Child. The things that I really appreciated about them is one, all of them have just absolute killer voices and are killer musicians that can do um, just amazing sight reading and bring a full song to life with character, with musical choices, with acting choices, uh, the first run through. So that was pretty phenomenal. Um, but the thing about all three of them that I appreciate even more as a writer is that they are all really kind 
smart, collaborative actors. And what I mean by that is sort of when you are the writer of a piece, you are kind of in a hot air balloon and you're floating like 500 feet up above the piece, uh, looking down at the whole thing, making sure everything fits together. And the great thing about really smart actors is they are inside the characters in a way that you are not inside the character necessarily as a writer. So really smart actors have great ways of saying like, hey, this line feels not quite accurate to my character or this plot point doesn't feel like something that my character would do, or I feel confused about that. And they can point it out to you in ways that help you develop the piece. Um, And I've definitely worked with actors before where it sort of seems like they think their job is to come in and point out all the places that you were stupid and all the places that you didn't write your show very well, Um, which sounds like doing the same thing that I just described as coming in and telling you all the places where the character feels inconsistent. Um, But there's just a real difference between the way that some actors do that in a way that makes you feel threatened and small as a writer um, and the way that these three actors do it, which is to make it feel exciting and fun and collaborative and... um, I'm just obsessed with all of them. And I think I can speak for Michael and Hannah in saying that that's one of the best readings I've ever done, whether for an educational program at NYU or readings that I've done in a more professional setting. And 2011 was also a pivotal year for all three of us. Michael had just finished the revival of Hair. That same year, I started my national tour with the Adams Family. And just a few months later, Hannah made her Broadway debut in Godspell. And so Star Child not only represents a singular moment that we hold very special to us, it also represents what we love about doing theater. New works, music, and roles that we can embody and make our own. And working with writers to create a role that's not only right for us, but is right for the show. I I mean, you were talking about you know, all of the new works that you've done, like, that is it. I'm not looking to any revival for a Tony. Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not going to be my moment. Like, you got to write something new and something couture. I want to go to the couturier for my role. I want it to fit right, you know, on me. Like, I, I love the idea of doing new work. Like, when they were doing I'm um, sending the park with George, like George was supposed to be was supposed to be a baritone. That was supposed to be a soprano until Mandy and Bernie walked in the room and they were like, ah, I changed my mind. Let's let's make this work for, for them. And um and, and I, I will say like in my career, it's been such an uphill battle to like appear on stage as a fully fleshed out human because yeah. there's there have been so few opportunities, I, I think, for Black actors and actresses to to appear on stage in a way that was about them, like, being 360-degree people instead of being, like, an archetype of what it is. Like, I love Jason Robert Brown, and he and I are close friends, which is the only reason why I can say this, but he wrote a musical, and he was 21, mind you, when he wrote it, where every character is a human, but his black character, his black character comes in and is like an archetype. He has no relationship with any other person on stage. And the one time he's a human, he's like, my father left me and I play basketball. And you, you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, ooh. 
who are the black people in your life? Did no one help you? No one tell you? You know what I mean? So it's like, all right. So we have work. We have work to do. Um, and you know, I'm, I, I'm, I am looking to the future. I'm looking to the to the writers. I'm looking to the producers, and also I'm looking to the actors because you know, as much as it is so important to be um, like Hannah to those of you who are listening and really play well with the team and do do well I think something else that in the time I've spent with her she's really good at bringing her conscience into the room too so it's not just her saying oh yeah oh everything's great oh everything's fine sure well I'll do it it's her going well is there a way that we can possibly can we work together to figure out a blank 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 um and I think that you know this is also why we're cast we're not cast to you know to just be you know, seat fillers in a show. Like mm-hmm. we bring our humanity to it every time. And, you know, I'm, I'm very excited to see this whole shift in the culture. You know, the world of Me Too is gonna ch- is changed everything about theater. We're in a post-Trump world. That's gonna change everything about theater. You know, everything that happens in the world, the art is here to reflect it. And I, and I think that you're doing a horrible job of theater if it doesn't. Yeah, it has to not only entertain, certainly that's a that's a big part of it, but it does need to needs to educate, it needs to challenge, it needs to make people see something or think something that they wouldn't have done otherwise. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. I want to entertain you, I want to educate you, and I want you to leave with more empathy. The three E's, right? It's like if we're doing those, I'm I'm in business. We're doing yeah. something, we're doing something right. Now, now getting back to, to Star Child, because that, that was something that we worked on for four days back in 2011. And Whew. yeah, yeah, it's crazy how time flies. And now, now we formed fast friendships there, like, like we often do, you know, when, when actors come together to work. And, and, and at that time, as you said, Michael, we were all in various stages in our career. At that point, though, you had already done uh, the revival of Hair. You had already been part of that. So having found Broadway, having had your debut so kind of early in your career, did you feel yes. like that, okay, now, now I'm here and I'm on the right track? Because my time in Hair was so quick, you know, I like got cast in the show. I like had just basically learned my lines and they were like, okay, so we're going to close. <laughs> I was like... Okay. I mean, the reality of what New York was, I think, hit me very swiftly. Um, And I, and I loved hair. It's still one of my favorite experiences on on the stage. But I think that the most important thing that hair taught me was like, don't you dare get comfortable. Don't you dare take it for granted. Um, So, um, so I didn't feel like I, I arrived at all, but I definitely felt like that had gave me the the perfect opportunity to now like express like my reality to the world and theater community. It was like the people's first glimpse into who I was. And I was like, well, I got to take this moment and I really have to run with it. So um, that's kind of where I, where I created the mindset of like new works is key. Like you, know, yeah. you have to, you have to try to get it on the ground floor. Like I remember when there was these, these guys, you know, Pace and Paul and they were just some guys I knew. And they were like, oh, would you sing a song or two for me? And I was like, sure. <laughs> and like, fast forward years later. And then all of a sudden, they are the they Pace and Paul. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I, that I even feel like I've arrived yet. Mm. You know, I still feel like there's so much 
I hate to say proving that that's such a negative way to put it, but I think there's so much left to show yeah. to feel like, oh, I'm just see, I, I'm, I'm just not Audra McDonald until I feel like Audra McDonald. I'm like, <laughs> there's work to do. I bet that there are peers of hers, like sitting shows on her same time are still feeling like, Ooh, chow. Until I'm Audra, I don't feel like I've, I'm even here. Right. She, she has surpassed us all. I don't, Ooh, I don't know that, honey. I don't know any of us can keep up. I was um, watching an interview with what is her name, Kelly O'Hara. Mm -hmm. And she was just talking about how she's like, you know, I've been to the Tonys a lot of times and I'd lost a lot. That was like the Susan Lucci of the Tonys. And, you know, I won my Tony and I was like hopeful that, you know, like TV was going to happen. It's something I really wanted to do. And I didn't even think about the fact that like, I was such a fan of hers. And I was like, she's Broadway's Kelly O'Hara. I was like, no, I hadn't seen her on TV. Why? Yeah. Why hadn't I? Um, so, so it's like, yeah, I think all of us are like, are arriving. <laughs> like we're, we're still like, we're still in yeah. the car waiting to arrive. Because for you, Hannah, it was a year after Star Child that you did your Broadway debut in Godspell. So, so for you, was it that same thing? Was it like, oh, I've, I've reached this dream, but I've still got more to do? Right. Because we did Star Child in the spring, and then I started, I replaced in Godspell January 2012. Yeah, right. And it's Broadway. And it's like your PhD. It's everything you've been working toward. You know, you're like, this is it. And I was subletting in Hell's Kitchen. And I can remember walking out of my apartment or the sublet, and it was, um, it was raining, but I like stepped over like a dead pigeon at my Ooh. my doorstep and I looked to my right and there was like garbage that was on fire but it was raining so I was like well thank goodness it's raining and at least the garbage fire won't like burn down my building and I'm like walking down my street and it's the Jersey bus line there's just like buses like whizzing past me and I and uh the I pass like the drug lord on the corner who works at the payphone, and he like says hello to me by name, you know. And the construction workers are like whistling, Oof. like "nice ass," you know. And it's like I'm wearing a full down winter jacket, and I'm like walking to my Broadway job. And I remember thinking, like, "Wait, this is it. This should be. This is. I've made it." And I just start crying because it doesn't feel like it's it, you know. Even though it's like Broadway. It's it's not the mountaintop maybe that you thought it was going to be. That being said, there's nothing like Broadway. It is very special. Um, but also because I replaced, my opening night was just me. When I went on for the first time, it, you right. know what I mean? It's you didn't. I didn't get like a big opening fanfare. I replaced, so it was so quiet. It's like Flora and the Red Men, uh, the song "A Quiet Thing." You know, it's. It happened so quietly, my Broadway debut. It wasn't exactly what I had, had imagined. Um, but I think if anything, it just lights a fire under your butt. You're just like, oh, well now, you know, if I've made it here, I have the courage to take another step, to take another three steps, to dream even bigger. I made it to the moon. Now I can dream, right. you know, in a much higher way. So I think Michael's right. As an artist, there's always the next step you want to take and hopefully in a healthy way, in a way that can celebrate where you are, celebrate what you've done, you know, and then, and then dream a new dream. Hannah, I love that you said that and you brought the emotional aspect of it to it because, you know, as I'm growing in emotional maturity and emotional IQ, it's like these moments that I would like put so much stock in, like, I want to be on Broadway. I want to be on TV and that sort of stuff. It's like, but will you be satisfied? Will that fulfill you? Will it make you happy? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Yeah. Like 
if you if you're putting happiness if you're putting the pressure of your happiness on this thing you're you're doing it wrong you cannot you cannot put it on that it's just this thing does not have the power to make you happy because if you're hungry it's this is like a snack throwing a snack at your ravenous hunger like to be on broadway like something else is causing that hunger and you got to get to the root of that girl and stop <laughs> stop trying to make broadway the scapegoat for it mm. um and totally you know so so for me also that's that's another reason why i was like oh i don't feel like i've arrived i feel like i just like checked off a thing on the list but the but the but the heading of the list is like be happy live well like be <laughs> joyous and it's like okay i can't depend on this on this job because it is that um i was having a conversation with my aunt and i was like man i'm so spoiled because you never went to work expecting your job to to fulfill you in the way that I go to work and expect hmm. my job to fulfill me. It's just it's just not right. It's not right to ask the thing that's supposed to pay my rent and pay my light bill and pay my cell phone bill and pay down my credit cards to be the thing to also fill my coffers hmm. with joy. You know, it's like, girl, that's too much pressure to put on on some singing and dancing from eight to ten. Right. There's like some serious codependency with your work. Yeah, it's like you got to find something else to do. Get your get you get you some coloring books and some crayons or get some <laughs> bubbles. Like you need something else. One of the first things I heard from a Broadway actor was that um, she was like, "This is just never going to define you. You should never let it define you. Enjoy it, but don't let it define you." And of course, when you're young, you don't want to hear that. You want to hear absolutely this job is going to define me, and now everyone's going to respect me, and I'm going to mm-hmm. you know. You're hearing your ego talk to you, but you know, she's right. You can't let any job define you. And she also was the person that was like, I, a lot of people don't do their best work on Broadway. Like the best work of your life might not be in New York city. Are you okay mm-hmm. with that? Because not so, often the best yeah. shows make it to Broadway. Oh, no. Yeah. See, now, now that's his own show. Now, that is yeah, that's own, it's- honey, if we really, <laughs> that's so, especially, when you've been working on so many new musicals and plays and you can see the new stuff that's being written and then you watch the next season of what actually makes it to Broadway, it, I mean, it is jaded Sometimes your heart You have to work so hard. Yeah, you have to keep your heart soft somehow because, you know, you're seeing how the sausage is made all of a sudden and uh, it's... It's just not always pleasant. To and y'all know the shows that are bad. Y'all, yeah. y'all listening, y'all know the ones that made the Broadway that y'all were like, now come on now. <laughs> we didn't need this Pretty yeah. Woman musical. We didn't need that. <laughs> <laughs> or King Kong. That puppet, how cool. But we didn't need that. Yeah. It's entertaining in some ways, but also tough to sit in an audience and realize this is what they did. I, I, I remember it for me, the case in point of that was when I finally, this was two years into its run, I finally got to see Spider-Man. And <laughs> I did not see any of these shows. You guys, I missed them all. I, I just, I just had to see what, okay, what is this mess of a Spider-Man? You know, cause I'd heard all the news and I finally watched it. And then this big, huge 10 foot blow up doll came out and this guy in a hoodie has his back to us and his, fighting it and that that was broadway and i'm like what is happening yeah oh, it was honey. it was it was a mess and so yeah that there there just comes along those times that are i i don't know the spectacle of it the name the cachet the the star whoever's in it kind of takes over and it it becomes something completely other than theater 
And it makes me so mad because you think of things like Legally Blonde, which should never have been so good. There's no reason it should have been this good. It was like the best thing I'd ever seen on Broadway, ever. And I'm like, it's Legally Blonde, how is it this good? So it's like, if this can be good, y'all don't have no excuse. Everything should be good. Like, <laughs> everything should be good. Because yeah. I'm looking for Legally Blonde too. I need another one. It's that good. I need, yeah. the, I need a second. <laughs> well, I just remember watching a show and sitting by a pair of girls and I won't say what the show was. It was not one of the best things that had ever happened to Broadway. I really want musical. you to just say it. I cannot say it. I cannot say it. She's like, there it was, was wicked. By me. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, they were just, they were like, ugh, I could do that. Ugh, that's so, anyone could do that. That person's not even good. That person's not even good. But I remember thinking in my heart and checking myself and being like, yeah, but you're not doing that. Someone had the guts to go do it. You know, and it, I remember it, really inspiring inspiring me to be like oh right i should just go do it if i think i can do this i should just go do it mm -hmm. yeah. instead of just sitting on this this back seat of of like judgment i right. should like get out there on the field and be willing to make some mistakes but also if i think it's so if i think i've got some great ideas i should go share them with the world you know right let so, me give the caveat of saying i can't get mad at anybody in any musical because rent comes every first oh that is and, so true and i'm like if you can make that check make that check mm -hmm. i went to go see amazing grace and i saw all my friends up there being slaves and i was so hurt but the first came every month oh, no. so they had to pay that rent and they they were all using different african accents and i was like where are y'all from but oh, they no. had to pay this this rent and they did what they had to mm -hmm. do but I'm looking yeah. at these at these producers going, now you know good and damn well. Sorry for cussing, but that's the only way you can say it. Like, come on now. Yeah. What are y'all doing with no, this blow-up doll and this man in this hoodie? Y'all know better than that. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Now, now, fortunately for both of you, you started out doing revivals, but you got to do original work, both uh, Michael for you, Motown the yes. Musical, uh, Bright Star for you, Hannah. How were those different from from being in the in the revival casts? Oof, heavy question. So, um, first of all, my experience doing um, hair was so quick because I was in a replacement cast. But unlike Hannah, I was a replacement, and they replaced the entire cast. So hmm. we like came in. And we had a full process of like learning the show together. So when we opened, like the whole cast opened, um, that was incredible, but it was also my first. So there's a place in my heart for how, you know, how I feel about, about that. Doing Motown, I had done so many readings and workshops of Motown the Musical. Um, and um, when I came back to the show, I replaced, I was the first replacement they put in for a cast member who left. And um, me and put back into the show, I was like, what happened to my baby? Like, it's so different than how I left her. She's, <laughs> she's changed. Um, so that was, so that was, that was weird. Um, and I didn't get my like couturier experience that I really wanted of like getting it cut and fit to, to my specifications. Um, I will say it, it taught me a lot more than hair taught me. 
because hair was just a wonderful expression of like what I'd learned up to that point. Um, but because I spent so much time in Motown um, and like watching it grow and watching it evolve and then being in the show for, for two years, um, it taught me about how to keep my fire burning for a long time, how to combat my own boredom and to go, well, these people have paid $200. They don't care how bored you are. Like you better find a way to, to get excited. Um, and it also, um, like how Hannah was saying, if you feel like you can do it better, then you need to do it. And um, it, I had gotten to a point of such discomfort in that show um, that it forced me to go, okay, if you feel like you're creative and you feel like you have something to say that you need to say, then you probably should start writing it down. And in that show was when I started writing my album, A Man Born Black. And, you know, it was the best thing that I could have ever done for myself was to say, um, if you have a point of view, stop trying to force your point of view on somebody else's work. Put your point of view on your own work. And for anybody who's listening, I, I know like your first instinct is to be like, well, I don't, why should I have to be Lin-Manuel Miranda? Why should I have to write my own piece? Why should I have to do this? Well, you don't have to do anything. You can wait for somebody else to do it, but you're going to be waiting. So if you have something that you want to say and something that you want to do, then you might want to shake yourself out of your own comfort zone, do something that you may not be good at at first and figure that thing out. Because I'll tell you what, can nobody tell your story the way you can tell it, period. Absolutely. Because for you, Hannah, you were with Bright Star from the beginning, correct? So you got to be in that journey as well. Well, I was with it from its first out of town. I think they had done like a little workshop thing at Vassar maybe that I hadn't been a part of because I was working on a different new musical called The Other Josh Cohen. And I had gone out of town leading another new musical called Somewhere in Time. So by the time I got around to Bright Star, I had already been a part of some new musicals that had some legs that had gone out of town. And I had already had a taste of, oh, every new thing you work on doesn't go the distance. <laughs> like yeah. you can go all the way out of town and put a million dollars into a show. And that doesn't mean it's coming back. By the time I got Bright Star, it was exciting because Steve Martin was attached to it and Edie Brickell, and it felt more real than some of the other pieces I had been on in the sense that it could be realized. Not, you know, not more real in its artistic value, but real in a money sense. Like this could maybe really go somewhere. So that was exciting. Um, creating, knowing that New York would see it in a big way. Of course, it came into the season with Hamilton, which was, <laughs> you know, that 2016, Broadway season was crazy. It was awesome. It was wild. But Hamilton took up a lot of the, the space. Uh, so it's it's fun to say that I was in that season. But um, <laughs> but I think Bright Star maybe would have had a better chance being a year earlier or a year later, certainly. But Bright Star, it just didn't quite find the audience that it needed to keep going. Well, and it's all those business things that you don't think about. Exactly. So Bright Star... Yeah, Bright Star was my first, uh, it was my education. When you get into the business and you're an actor and then you start realizing, oh, it's not just about whether a show is good or not good or makes sense or doesn't. It's about so many other things. Right. And at the end of the day, it's a business and people need to make money. So that's how we're approaching these decisions is how do you make money on something? And I learned what the nut was of a show, what that meant. Right. And I learned... 
how much money we needed to turn every week to stay alive. And I learned how many seats needed to be filled and how, you know, marketing dollars, how far that goes with the show. We were east of Broadway in the court theater. There was construction on our corner. There was no way to see our theater from Broadway. That impacts you, right. you know? So I learned a lot about the nuts and the bolts of the industry through Bright Star. Um, that was a wild journey because I did San Diego. We went to DC and then came to Broadway. That's a lot of time for actors to invest, to finally have a moment on Broadway. But I'll tell you my favorite version of the show, doing it as an actor and as a person, was the world premiere in San Diego because there wasn't money breathing down your neck. You know, it wasn't like you weren't trying to fit into a box and I hope people like us and let's find our audience. We were just doing the show. And that was awesome. I learned that you should really celebrate your out of town tryouts because that's going to be the most fun you'll ever have is just discovering the show for the first time for what it is. You know, every other version after that will be trying to make someone happy. The more you get into it, the more you realize that, you know, there's a lot more to it than walking into a room and booking a job. That was a really amazing yeah. um realization when I found out for the first time, you know, I'm sitting at like EPAs when I was just like EMC, didn't have my equity card yet. And I really thought that if you had an audition, you had a shot at the role, right? That's what baby Hannah thought. <laughs> okay, Me Michael, too. I don't need that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the idea that like now it's like, oh no, all those roles are filled or going to be filled by someone else. Mm -hmm. It's very rare to have an open role that they're actually looking for somebody new. I mean, it happens. It sometimes happens, especially the more specific a role is. But so many times you're auditioning against a role that's already been cast. And I didn't, you know, you start finding things out and instead of letting it, jade, you know, yeah, become jaded by it, you can, you know, just use it to motivate yourself and it's hard to keep a soft heart in this business, but the people who do are successful. Yeah. So it's worth pursuing, I think. I tell people all the time, I wish I had a t-shirt that said Sudden Fosters in the Wings because <laughs> I just want everyone to remember this like, even if you feel cute, honey, go down and let Sudden Foster come up and snatch your show from you. <laughs> if you think right. you're cute. Right. I love hearing these stories because it, you know, with the the careers that both of you have have had, uh, you know, not not only on stage, but you've branched out into music recordings and TV film, you know, with with all of those accolades and you know certain levels of success, does it feel like you've made it? Like like what does making it mean to you at this point? Okay, I I've thought about this question a lot, right? Because because it's like, when is it ever enough? This can't be your happiness. It can't be because you'll drive yourself crazy as an artist. And really for me, success means being able to choose my own projects. That is such a marker of success that I don't have to take a job for money or for healthcare weeks. If I'm being able to choose my work, whether that's in you know, small town, Arkansas, or if that's on the Great White Way in New York City, being able to choose my own work is a major marker of success. When I have a choice, when I have, when I have a voice in what I'm doing, what kind of art I'm making, that is huge. And I've had some of that, certainly, right? And I would just like to have more of that. I agree with you. My, I was going to say being able to say yes, which is different than having to say yes. Um, and mm. that's what success is. I want to be able to say yes. I want to be able to green light. I want to be able to 
to be the person who says, oh, your idea is great. Let me help. You know, I want to be able to say yes to you, to it, to, to life. That's success. Now, when it comes to figuring out success, there's no shortage of people giving their opinions, their keys to success and how to achieve it. Even this podcast searches for that with every guest and episode. But there are those looking for more concrete, conclusive answers on what breeds success. Back in 2015, the Pennsylvania State University and Duke University compiled a research study that they had been doing for 20 years. They tracked more than 700 children from across the U.S. between kindergarten and the age of 25. And they found a significant correlation between their social skills as kindergartners and their success as an adult two decades later. This 20-year study showed that children who would cooperate with their peers, be helpful to others, understand their feelings, and resolve problems on their own were far more likely to earn a college degree and be successful in finding work in their 20s. Parenting also plays a big part in a child's success as they grow into adulthood. In 2014, researchers from the University of Delaware completed a study of 243 people born into poverty and found that children who received sensitive caregiving did better in academic tests and had healthier relationships all the way into their 30s. According to this study, parents who are sensitive caregivers respond to their child's signals promptly and appropriately and provide a secure base for children to explore the world. And when it comes to exploring, Hannah, Michael, and myself all found the arts as that home where we could figure out who we are, play with the different talents and things we were interested in, and have these adventures on stage that not only led us to collaborate with others, but develop our own sense of self and well-being. So I asked Hannah and Michael about their family life, both of them coming from pretty large families, and how that dynamic helped foster them not only as individuals, but as creative artists. Yeah, I make the joke that I probably needed more friends growing up because... Like I was a little bit of a chubby kid, you know, like middle school years. I mean, whose middle school years are kind? Ugh. Whose? Yes. Yeah, my school Mine pictures weren't. look hideous. Yeah. So I was a little bit of a chubby kid, learned a lot of instruments. But yeah, I have 10 brothers and sisters. So there was always someone to sort of play music with, sing with. It was a way to pass the time. It was a way to express ourselves um, in a creative way. And our parents really encouraged it. Like our parents love the arts. So I grew up in a unique way. Um, just, yeah, that's, I feel like that's unique to have parents that really have such a big family, encourage the arts in a huge way. But I also grew up in the sticks. I grew up in the boonies um, in <laughs> Michigan. Because did they, did your parents, did they kind of push you into the arts or was it more just your brothers and sisters kind of found it and you all just started on your own? Oh no, my parents, they both play instruments and sing. My dad conducted choirs and we played music in church together and had a family band. Oh goodness, this is like stuff you don't talk about on a first date, you know? Oh, the family band. Yes, there was merch. Um, 
so we just grew up in a musical way. Music was definitely the foundation of who I was artistically. And then uh, theater and storytelling just came from there. Not a lot of theater people in my family, mostly music. And then um, that was a way to identify myself you know. So coming from a large family, did you ever feel kind of lost yourself? Because where were you and, and the 10 kids? <laughs> yeah, so there are 11 of us Le and I'm number two. Oh, okay. So they're nine younger than me. Uh, so I was the, the oldest sister, you know, but going into a, a, a show family was really easy because I was used to a big family. I was used to sort of yeah, a lot of people and where do I fit in and let's tell the story. So theater was really attractive. And for you, Michael, you grew up singing in church and, and that's kind of where you found your voice, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I grew up in a family where the family business was ministry. So there was lots of pastors, preachers, that sort of thing. So um, music was like the lane that I could go in. That was my lane. Like there are no other singers in my family. Um, hmm. my baby sister will sing. She sings at church, but like, that's it. She's, she's not singing on nobody's stage. So that was it for me. So kind of coming into musical theater as a profession, it felt like easy in the sense of like, it wasn't like I was used to being in like a big family, even though I do like Hannah, I have a huge family. Like I have seven siblings, but, um, I came into, um, to do musical theater and it really felt like I, I was raised in what I call a political family because like the church hierarchy was such a big thing. It was like we all held offices like in our church and in our conventions for our church and like the, the conferences for our churches. So like coming into musical theater, I really came in with the like eye of the tiger in the sense of like, okay, we all get along, let's have a good time. But this is like the business of yeah. show. Um, which I don't know how I ended up not being like jaded um, doing it, but I think I came in with, with the understanding of, you know, that, you know, I'm here to like do a thing and to like give the people a feeling and then I can go and like live my real life when I get off the stage. So both of you coming from big families and Hannah, you kind of mentioned this, that you were kind of ready for the collaboration, the, the family that you find in theater. What Was that an easy transition for both of you going from your, your family dynamics, whether in church or in, in a band to the stage? Yeah, because you, you know how to get along with people. You acknowledge different personalities. In fact, you sort of appreciate them, right? You're looking for how you fit into the big picture and realize that, you know, I always say a show is like a painting. And as an actor, I'm only one color. I'm responsible for my one color. That's right. it. I want my color to be great. And then the director can choose what color he wants to paint with. The writers can say, I want a little bit more of this or a little less of that. But my job is just to be the best version of my paint color for the picture. So I had a really clear understanding of how group dynamic worked and really like collaborating. That's definitely something that's in my blood. I don't know. What about you, Michael? I think like being from a big family, maybe it's true for all people, but especially being from a big family, you learn how to share. There's no way around it. You just have to, you have to share the stage and share the space. And, you know, everyone has to find a, a time. Also, it, it gave me a level of confidence because I knew, I, I know I have a gang of people who like are already down for me. I don't have to worry about that. So 
coming into the show wasn't about coming into shows. It's not about like, oh, will they like me? Where's my value? What, how am I, am I special? Am I important? It's like, I got a whole bunch of Kilgores at home who already have affirmed me. So I don't, so I'm not looking to you to affirm me. I'm, I am, I felt very empowered to come into a situation going, okay, how can I help? What can I bring? Instead of feeling like, oh well, God, like, will will they even will they even know, notice me? Um, I don't know if that's like the same for everybody in in big families, because I know, I mean, I'm the oldest, and that also has a lot to do with it. But um, but I, you know, I've heard stories of people saying, you know, this like, I I didn't feel seen. I felt kind of like a leftover. I definitely didn't. I mean. We both have oldest child syndrome. We have oldest child syndrome. You know, it's like the youngest kid. You're like, I raised you. I don't. Yeah, totally. I I raised you. My my youngest sister is ten years younger than me, which is not a lot of years. But like, I was changing diapers. I was making bottles. I was picking up from school, taking her to school. I'm like, I I raised you. Totally. <laughs> so in many ways, being the oldest for for both of you, did you feel like a leader of of your siblings? Did you feel and and kind of feel a duty to make sure each of them had their space and found their their way? I felt like I felt the good and the bad parts of being a leader because I did feel a responsibility that I was like, oh, this feels unfair that I'm responsible for and to these these little people. Um, But I also feel such pleasure in their success. Like I I taught them how to how to ride a bike. That was me. Um, (laughs) And I I mean, I think I, I bring it to my work in the sense of I'm really unafraid to say my opinion because I don't really care who has the biggest piece in the room. Like if the idea is good, it wins. Like let's do the idea that wins. Like if it comes, if it comes from Stephen Sondheim, great. If it comes from the guy who like is the reader, great. Like the culmination of my growing up, like I think taught me that. Cause now I'm looking back on my child and I'm going, so 12 year old bossy Michael doesn't really work right now. So like, <laughs> so like let's do the version where like you can look back and, and understand, like have maturity enough to go, okay, well maybe if I step back, then like things will actually work better without me trying to muscle it and like control it. Yeah, I think you understand too, when everybody's doing well is when you do well. Bingo, bingo. Everybody succeeding is your success. And maybe it's the oldest child syndrome too, like owning everybody's success as your own, but there, there is a feeling that there's strength in numbers. You're better as a team. All of that was translated into theater in a huge way. And honestly, being on film sets, I love it. It is like a family and you understand that everybody's success is your own personal success. You look better when everyone else looks better. So the health of the group is really important. Hannah, I, I, I want to ask you, I wonder how do you handle it when you see somebody flailing? How do you quiet the big sister in you? That's like, let me go help you. Let me go fix it. Oh yeah. She's not quieted. (laughs) She's like, (laughs) how can I pick you up and hold you? All the maternal instincts come out, you know? And, but, but I think it makes for a good leader in the room and maybe we're, I don't want to be, you know, narcissistic about it, but I really do enjoy when I see other people in the room leading, like we've all been in theater spaces, in shows, 
on sets where you see the leaders and when they're leading well, or we've when all been in shows. Well, yes. yeah, we've all been in shows mm -hmm. with bad leaders or Oof, no leaders or where no, no leaders. one wants to lead. And you're like, this is just not going to work. And other people don't understand that dynamic that we all need to be working together. It's like, a, you know, no one can be the sun in the galaxy. Okay. Like, Everything has to be going towards the show and we're all just planets orbiting the sun. You're just part of a, you know, a system. No mm -hmm. one can be that center thing. As soon as you said the thing about the, like, no leader, it's like, there's nothing worse to me than, like, 32 counts of freestyle. Like, do not do that to me. Don't give me 32 <gasps> counts of freestyle. Like, Oh, my gosh. Like, yeah. Lead, lead, please. Could you lead, please? I need someone like, to be leading right now. <laughs> somebody, please lead. Like, what is my blocking? Like, help me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Choreography, free counts of eight. That is not my. That is not my skill set. Honey, I'm gonna give you the most character-filled eight counts of yeah. non-dancing. Patrick, I want to see all. I want to see all your improv eight counts, sixteen counts. Oh yeah, I remember. I had one audition where it was for Spamalot, and and they had that. They had you know we're we're all doing the the ensemble dancing uh, as the knights, and then all of a sudden it's like, and you have eight counts, and I was like, what? And and most people chose to tap during that time. I Ooh, do not tap. Oh, no. Right? I do not tap. So what do I do? What do I do? No, I just go, I go, all right. I just did it with my mouth. I was just like, whatever. And at least I made them laugh, but I was obviously not the dancer that they wanted. I agree. If you're not going to be, if you're like, listen, the most talented person is not going to be me today, then you might as well mm -hmm. be the most interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that. My back is sweating at the thought of like a room full of tap dancers and me. <laughs> And they're like, just go. I'm like, go, go where? I'm, uh, I'm gonna go home. Like that's where I'm going. Yeah. Jeez, how yeah. rude. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. When it comes to auditions, actors have no shortage of stories, both the wonderful things we've experienced in the room, as well as those uh, frustrating and challenging times we've had there. Earlier in the season, I did a couple of episodes on audition stories, and later this year, I'll have some more audition stories to share. In fact, Michael shares one of when he got to meet his idol, Billy Porter, how he inspired Michael's own creative journey, and what it was like to finally meet him face-to-face -face in the audition room. Back in 1994, The Revival of Greece opened on Broadway, starring Mr. Billy Porter, now, I understand, Michael, that that had a big impact on you, especially Porter's performance. It was him performing live on The Tonight Show. Um, I didn't know anything about it. I just knew there was this black man with orange hair screaming down, and I was like, him, that's what I want to be. Um, so I became a fan of his way back when, and then fast forward to 2009, and I'm going into audition for Five Guys Named Mo, and he's directing. And um, I got cast, and the rest is literally history. Yeah, because he really took you under his wing at, at that time. He, he did. He is my, he's my mentor in my phone. I put him, he is Billy Porter, personal musical theater. Oh, personal musical theater icon and hero. Oh. I love that. And what is it about him that inspired you so much when you saw that performance? Um... Well, I wouldn't seen a whole bunch of black folks doing 
theater. I mean, it was interesting to see him in this cast where he was kind of like the only black person and the spotlight was on him. He wasn't standing, you know, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of the Tonys. I'm a huge fan of musical theater. And it's like years and years and years and years of like cast of all white people. And then you see like this random black couple that like lives in the town. It's like, what what version of Oklahoma in real life is it where there's all white people and there's just randomly two black people who live in the town and then the audacity to not even make them a couple like they have one on one side of the stage and one on the other side of the stage so they don't know each other they're not friends like so we're in this whole town of Oklahoma and like they don't who are their people who is their family who did they move here with like where's the dramaturg somebody needs to help me um so it was like things like that um and to see him standing on zero, mm-hmm. um, that just was so spectacular to me. And as the years have gone by and as I've gotten to know him, he challenges me to be authentic in a way um, that I didn't, I didn't know that I wasn't being authentic. You know, I thought I was being real and being myself, but he is always excavating himself. He's always renovating himself Mm. and he's always trying his best to reveal himself to us um and it's terrifying but it makes his art juicy it makes um the rise of his stars that much more spectacular especially for for little you know as he calls them little black sissies you know what i mean like i was that kid who was like oh maybe i'm valid maybe i matter maybe i'm important and now there are more kids who are going, oh, yes, I'm valid, I'm important, I'm special, I matter. I don't have to be, you know, the first black Bach. I can be the only me, you know, and, and that to me is, is, is what makes him so special and exciting and, and he, so important to me um, because it is forcing me to cause the revolution within myself so that I can bring it to the industry that I love Mm. and say, all right, if we're going to be inclusive, then let's really do it. If we're going to be, if we're going to change the world, then let's really change it. Let's not pretend to change it. Let's not play at it. Let's really do it. And for you, Hannah, what was that transition or, or what inspired you to go from, you know, musical band to being in theater? Um, I had a really amazing community theater growing up. It's called the Kalamazoo Civic Theater. And it was in like the top three community theaters when I was in that middle school, high school stage. Um, the top three community theaters in the country that were focused on funding and and just the quality of theater that they were doing. They had a youth program that was amazing and the kids did everything. They did stage management, lighting design, costume design. There was a kid running your soundboard. Like they gave kids so much autonomy and just independence in the way that they were creating their art. No one was babied, you know, you went and you built your set. Yeah, you were 13 years old, you can do it, you know? And it was really quality, quality storytelling. So I kind of got sucked into that and just loved it. It had so much independence. I think that was it, just uh, an outlet for creativity. And, And it just went from there. I just realized I really liked storytelling, whether that was in music, or plays or musicals because I think I've done as many plays as I have musicals in everything high school college and then now in a professional career I've really been able to split my time so I really do enjoy the storytelling aspect Mm -hmm. of what we do that to me is 
the best. It's my favorite thing. An actor who sings or an actor who dances is always my favorite person on stage. I want to see the person that's unique. Like Michael was saying, I want to see people who are themselves. I don't want to see someone imitating a sound or a movement, what they think theater should look like. I want them being themselves, the best version of that, and telling me a story that I believe. It's so tough because we're in a very subjective industry, but that's also what makes it the best. It's We're looking at art, right? So it's not, is it good? Is it bad? Is it right? Is it wrong? That's not how we want to ask a question. We want to say, how did that make you feel? Did right. you believe that or not? You know, those are the questions. It's like, how did it impact you? And I love that. I love the subjective nature of what we do. And, and in many ways, it can feel like a superficial, you know, like, like you were saying, we have to be something, we have to be this on this particular day or go into the audition room and we have to act like this. But yeah, I hear from so many casting directors, it is all about what, what is you, what is, what is it that Hannah, what is it that Michael brings it to the room that no one else can bring? And that's, that's what they want to see. But it, that is the toughest thing to just open up and be like, okay, this is what I got to bring. What do you think about it? It's the most vulnerable thing. It's the yes. most, it's the truest, it's the most honest thing. And you're right. I think that is more difficult than anything else to find your uniqueness, not be afraid of it. It's funny because I think that there is, there's like a weird um, split, I think, in the community because as much as I want, I, I feel like everyone says that, but I don't feel like everyone really believes that. And that it bothers me when I go to see theater and I feel like I'm hearing the same voice all the time. I feel like I'm seeing the same show all the time. I feel like there's there's like a real lack of creativity, not in the parts of the performers, but on the parts of like producers and the people who like write the checks and say yes. Um, and I'm wondering how is it, how do we as the people who put our bodies and our voices on the line, how do we change the culture of, of musical theater so that, you know, I grew up in a time where it was like, you could trade musical theater stars like baseball players. You know, mm -hmm. it was like, you knew Mandy Patinkin was gonna give you this. You knew Bernadette could do that. You knew, I mean, there were stars in a way that I think that they're trying to treat the performers like expendables you know what i mean how how do we change that culture like can we change it is it our responsibility to change it like adina menzel when wicked came out everyone wanted to sound like her and so then it created this female pop musical theater voice that a lot of girls started to emulate and so i i think that a lot of times we can just kind of latch on to what's working rather than pushing something new right I, and i also think that we need to go and whoop some of these um, these programs, these college programs that are kicking out all these kids who like have no personality and no originality and like the voices all sound the same. They need to be whooped, whooped, whooped <laughs> because these kids are coming to these schools from high school sounding incredible as unique artists and somehow the machine is beating them down mm. into these, these kids that, that live inside a box. They need to be whooped. We need to get our belts and go to these universities and start whooping people because i don't i hate it it just makes me so upset like like i think that you know we, we worked on the show star child together and it was so cool to be in this like room full of misfits like all of us were 
you know, off the beaten path of, you know, there was a, there's a type, you know what I mean? Everyone knows that I'm kind of like one of Billy's children. Like everyone knows that, but like, <laughs> I'm not Billy Porter. I can't do what he does. I'm doing what I do. And it just makes me, it just, it infuriates me when I see all these kids coming out and it's like, you're not even taking into account what these kids bring. You're looking at somebody who's like tall and handsome and you're like, okay, well, great. You're not funny. It's like, no, I don't, don't just say I'm not funny just cause I'm handsome. It's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, you're a soprano. So yeah. So this, so this is the kind of role you're going to play. It's like, why can't I be interesting just because I sing soprano, you know? And I, I, and I, I just want us to like shatter that whole idea, but I just wonder where the, where we start, where do we start like breaking, breaking that thing down? That's a really good point for kids who are listening to this podcast. And, you know, Patrick, the idea of talking about, you know, why I'll never make it right. Is the whole idea Mm -hmm. of this podcast and, and, you know, things that we overcome in the industry or as actors. And I think there, Michael made a really good point. There's so many kids out there who are either so talented and getting into programs that are just washing them down into vanilla popsicles. And then there are so many kids out there that are in smaller programs who maybe didn't get into the big top gun schools that they wanted, who feel terrible, like they're never going to make it, like they won't have the branding behind them, the name. And I just want to give those kids encouragement saying, take what Michael's saying, go into your small program and be yourself. Go find who you are. You in smaller programs, they're going to let you be weird. They're going to let you be unique and strange and wonderful. And um, I personally went to a public school that was just like off the beaten path. I don't come from one of the big, the big ones, you know, and, but what I appreciate about my program so much is that I came out feeling really unique and different. Like Michael's saying, like, I didn't come into New York City needing to sound like Sutton Foster or Gavin Creel. It was like every guy wanted to sound like Gavin and every girl wanted to sound, you know, and those are amazing artists, but they already have their space. So, um, so I just want kids to feel encouraged. If you're in a small program, take advantage of it, be yourself. Well, Hannah and Michael have certainly found unique ways to be themselves, both in theater and TV and film and music recordings. To find out more about them and how you can follow them on social media, look in the show notes for links not only to them, but also some of the topics that we've talked about today. And don't forget their final five episode coming up next, where I'll be asking them both those final five questions. In the fourth and final episode of my look at previous Broadway seasons, I'll be talking with Douglas Sills, an amazing performer and singer who got his Broadway debut and Tony-nominated performance in The Scarlet Pimpernel. If you found today's conversation beneficial at all, I would love it and be most grateful if you would share this episode and this podcast with someone who you think could also benefit from these conversations. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, reminding you that the reasons for not making it may be numerous and frustrating, but the reasons to keep going are even more numerous and rewarding. Let's get together next time and talk more about why I'll never make it. (laughs) 